Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for having me back. It's it's good to be here. It's good to have you guys. It's good to be in the chair and talking to y'all and having you listen. I hope you guys had a great long weekend. I'm your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to The Charlie Shrem Show. Together twice a week, we dive deep with some of Bitcoin and crypto's most influential leaders, ideas, and thoughts, and we try to understand how this movement came to be. Today, I'm excited to have back on the show, Ingo Rube from the Kilt Protocol. Ingo, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me again. It's always good to have you. This is a great series. And Mariam Ayati from Water Protocol, thank you so much for coming as well. It's lovely to be here, Charlie. Thank you. So Water Protocol, W-A-T-R. Where did you guys come up with that name? Uh, what a lovely place to start. So a few things. If you're a Bruce Lee fan, if you remember his sort of iconic... Sure iconic interview where he talks about being like the way water can go in and it can fill any vestibule or any vehicle and it, it remains transparent while taking the shape of that. But we wanted to go one step further because what you can do with water is reshape everything, whether it's the most jagged rock or the most longstanding infrastructure. And, and you can do it transparently and openly and in a way that that feels safe and and sort of consistent for those who are already in that world. And when you think about commodities and resources, a, a world that's, you know, hundreds of years of history and legacy, for us, it was really important to be able to transition from one form of that to a new economy version of it without being too disruptive. And water feels like a really good name to achieve that. It applies to kind of like overall what you guys do. And, you know, water protocol tracking supply chains from from metals and minerals, food and agriculture, energy and fuels, carbon credits, and all these different things. Water is like that kind of medium that can flow through. But most people don't really think about commodities or the problems with commodities. What type of issues are there? It's sort of everything you consume and everything we pollute today is a commodity, right? The, the resource model of whether it's this laptop that's today sitting between both of us or the headsets or the buildings, they're built with steel, metals, minerals, where we're powering our, our infrastructure with electricity that comes from mostly either an oil well or from solar panels, which again need metals and minerals to be created. So it really is the bedrock of our economy, about $17 trillion economy, 20% of, of the global economy and everything else depends on it. And it has some age-old dilemmas, right? It's the way we consume is, is unsustainable, which is why we talk about energy transition, transitioning from one way of you know, consuming, whether it's oil and oil products or even graduating to a solar economy and an electric economy. That's a really metal and mineral rich transition that we don't have the resources for. And if we exploit the resources the way we have historically, what we'll create is an abundance of resource wealth in the economic north and a dearth of resource wealth as we export all of that from the economic south, who today basically would much prefer having continuous electricity to worrying about whether or not we're, you know, we're ready to electrify. So we've got these age-old dilemmas of energy transition, preservation of resources, the way we treat local communities, the way we preserve things like water and those other scarce resources. So there's a lot that our traditional paradigms haven't been able to address. And in my mind and all of our partners' minds, it's possible to create a new economy leveraging the latest tech 
and an open developer ecosystem to think about these dilemmas. We live in a world with like all these people removing, remove all the borders, right? And nation states and everything. But we live in this world with all these people. And on this earth, we have all these abundant resources. And we theoretically, without getting into the conversation of, of, of climate, we have resources to, to power and feed all the people that live on it for forever, theoretically. And, and that's like kind of like the going idea. And so why do we then live in a world with poverty, corruption, graft? Why do we live in a world where commodities, like you said, electricity, doesn't reach whole countries like South Africa? Wealthy and poor friends in South Africa don't have electricity. You have places in the world where they don't have food, where you have food insecurity, rich or poor. Why do we live in a world like that? What What's the issue with commodities and that chain that that like from beginning to end that's preventing us from living in a more equal world? I love that question. I want to give you one data point. Do you know that the just the pool cleaners in North America, the electricity they use to like keep running the little pool vacuums we have, the electricity they use would be sufficient to electrify all of West Africa. Just that. Now think about oh, the wow. absurdity of that. I used to look after Shell's uh, origination and trading business which meant I spent a lot of time in Nigeria looking at um, basically exporting resources. But as you do that, you become deeply familiar with what happens when you export resources. You know, you're also exporting prosperity, you're exporting opportunity, you're yeah. exporting wealth. As you do that, what, what's left behind are nations, like you mentioned, South Africa. But, but for me, Nigeria, Ghana, so much of Africa is really close to my heart alongside South Africa. We, you know, if, if you would ask a typical citizen in Nigeria what they wish they could have from their power provider, they wouldn't even ask for continuous supply. They would say that what we would like to know is which hours in a given day will there be electricity so we can plug in our phones, so we can plug in all of our charging devices and then make it through the next day, right? It's, it's such a disconnect from our world of not being bothered to turn off the lights. So one, I think the reason those paradigms exist is, is actually a really great parallel with tech, right? The first iteration on all, all of these solutions were, were really large multinationals who were taking significant risk, trying to understand how do you even, what do you even do with oil? What do you do with metals? How do you get them to a place where they can be monetized? And then some of that wealth goes back to the local community much more of it is spent trying to transform it into something usable for the economies that can pay for it, right? And that's the traditional format. What we ended up getting is a lot of intermediaries and a lot of international intermediaries who are incredibly wealthy. All you have to do is look at share prices, right, of where the value sits in these supply chains. And unfortunately, a lot of corruption at the local level because a lot does go back to the local government but it doesn't then filter back to the local community, right? It's spent at a centralized government level. It comes down to the corruption and graft and misdirection of, of resources because so many of those resources, they're not tracked. And they have so many intermediaries who monetize. Everyone takes a piece of the of the pie and there's not much, you know, by the time they, they go all the way back to whether it's the farmer in, in Colombia doing something or it's someone else, then they're not getting back much of the resources or the minor, right? Those become uh, those become the smallest pieces of the puzzle. 
there's no fungibility with with resources and commodities because one is usually similar to the next one or it's too expensive to tell them apart or it's always been too expensive to track them or tell commodities apart and to track the supply chain of where it came from to where it ended up and all the people that were involved because again it's simply too expensive and it's pointless so that's where you can have like gold and diamonds come out of the ground you can have different types of energy and and the people that are the ones taken out of the ground can decide who gets paid and that's where you have most of the wars today we've talked about decentralized identity from like a like a person point of view how can dids then now be attached in a in a like very simple way to commodities to solve this problem a huge problem and um, we were thinking about that for quite a while to be honest before we came up with a solution what mariam does is basically she uh, she puts the commodity or a representative of the commodity on the chain so that uh, there's, there's an identifier for the commodity so it is an object on a chain on the underwater blockchain um, and from there you can trace it you can trade it and you can uh, you know where it originated you know where, where it currently is you can sell it from a to b you can see which profit has been made with it and stuff like that bringing transparency to the to the commodity market so th this is what the, what the water blockchain does and what you need to do is you have to somehow give those things then an identity because it is not just there it also has properties like people saying something about that. So this is yep. fantastic steel or this is uh, a fair traded or whatever corn. Uh, so and, and all these these additional things which you want to add to a commodity, this actually constitutes the big problem. I think for, for the blockchain people, it's easiest to understand when you compare this object on a blockchain, which is in Mariam's example, is a commodity if you compare it with an NFT. Because an NFT is, is, is also wow. an object on a blockchain, and it's a pretty stupid thing. Because the only thing that you can do with an NFT is actually you can change the ownership, right? You can put and take it from here, and then tomorrow you own it because I sold it to you. This, this is what an NFT can do. I cannot do anything more. But this is also sometimes not enough because when you own a beautiful NFT, and I'm a, maybe I'm a gallerist or so, and I want to say this this, yeah. this thing I actually exhibited in my showroom, uh, then maybe your NFT gets more valuable in the end, right? So th this is the same problem, and it also needs a solution. And the solution uh, we presented for that is uh, the so-called asset DID. An asset DID is an implicit locator of an object on a blockchain. Sounds complicated, but it's actually pretty simple. You take together the root hash of one blockchain, say Ethereum, for example. So th this is just a number which identifies Ethereum. So then you know this thing lives on the Ethereum blockchain. And then you take the smart contract where the NFT was generated from and put this behind that. And then you take the number of the NFT and put it behind that. Then you've got those three things. And this is basically a unique locator for any object on any blockchain so it is an ethereum Whoa. blockchain it is a commodity on Mariam's blockchain so it is it doesn't matter what it is it's anything it can be this a 20 second bitcoin transaction it can be a smart contract itself on ethereum it can be a commodity it can be whatnot uh, so basically everything so then you can identify everything and it is self-contained. It means that this number will never change, no matter who owns this thing, right? If you, you just change something in the smart contract when you, when, when you sell an NFT. But the NFT itself always stays the same. And the number, the locator, the, the asset DID is self-contained inside the thing and no one can ever change it. So now you can identify those things. 
But when we can identify those things, then they have this string, this number. And then if you have as a person or as an organization, you have a DID, then you can actually put information on the blockchain saying, this is me, my DID. I say, this is a beautiful NFT and I exhibited it, or it is a beautiful bunch of commodity. And what I'm talking about is exactly this object. And this is what you can put on the killed blockchain. So we have the mechanism to identify any object on any blockchain, and we have the mechanism to comment or say something at credentials. In our case, it's always credentials, right? Uh, so add credentials to any of those DIDs, as many as you want, anyone who wants to do that. And the only thing that Mariam in the end has to do is they have she has to filter out which information she needs for her blockchain and add through the work of her blockchain actually everything that is needed to be added to actually make it transparent, to make it open, and to make it possible to find out which piece of commodity this actually is. So th this is actually a pretty simple mechanism, but it took us a while to figure it out. Mariam, how does this, what does this change for you? Well, you know, we're, we're an open protocol and, and that's, that's already kind of unique, completely unique in, in the world yeah. of commodities, right? I, I've done a lot of these blockchain projects in the past. They've all been closed. And as, as you, as you try to embrace open, you have to accommodate a few things. One is there's really serious compliance and KYC, KYB requirements in my world. And what we do is we have partners such as Kilt who are able to provide that underlying core identity infrastructure and try to protect its integrity, right? And then you have partners like some of the large service providers, whether it's a Deloitte or a KPMG, who are providing the KYC, KYB data so that you know who the organizations are you're dealing with and not necessarily the blockchain, but everyone on there. So if you're a giant commodity producer and a giant trading house, before you even do anything, you need that KYC, KYB and the work that the Kilt team has done actually builds quite nicely as one of the inputs for us on our identities when it comes to organizations and individuals. And we're really excited to leverage their work. When it comes to assets, it's, it's slightly more nuanced and, and more complex in that creating an NFT, which can absolutely be done on Kilt or some partners will want to do themselves, right? If you're a large producer, you will have your own standards, you will have who can even attest to the veracity of your of your claims and and generate that once you have that identity like ingo says that identity does go through the life cycle of a commodity with you and it accrues what we call attributes oh. right and what attributes are for example let's say and i'll talk about coffee because i do a lot of work with the united nations on coffee and I think coffee is really interesting because it's it's one of those areas where as a community of consumers, we've become comfortable with paying a different price for what is essentially just caffeinated water, right? You might pay $10 for it, or you might pay $2 yeah. for it. You might buy Fairtrade, you might buy Colombian. And we've, come, we've become really comfortable with that idea. But, you know, if you create an asset identity at the source of production, and the actual producer, let's talk about a farmer in this instance, knows and has UI and APIs to either automatically, if they're big enough and they're sort of owned by a Nestle, or individually and manually if they're smaller, put in their credentials of 
This is how much water was used. This is the source. Here's some AI-generated videos and, and, and satellite imagery and IoT data of my farm. This is the thing you are consuming. And every step of the way, we capture the attributes. Let's say your buyer, and I'm making these up names up. We're not working with them. But let's say your buyer is Starbucks. And Starbucks says, I want 10 things tracked. I want to be able to show the water consumption. I want to know that there's no slave labor. I want to know there's no child labor. I want to know that women have 10% of the supply chain. I want to know X, Y, and Z. Whatever it is the consuming organization wants, we hardwire that into the UI and UX that lives through this commodity, thereby making the commodity programmable. And once it becomes programmable, you have live feeds of AI verification, statistical verification of the veracity of that truth. Because bullshit in gives you bullshit out. I can say I didn't do any of these things. And if you have no way of actually querying that as the general public or assessing its veracity based on some data, there's, it's useless, right? So first we have a layer of AI statistical analysis that says based on all of the known public information in this specific geography, in this space, this is, you know, 35% likely to be true or 99% likely to be true. And then when you make that queryable to an open developer ecosystem, and the reason it's really op- important to be on an open chain is you're telling anyone who cares to actually go deeper. If I tell you that this, this producer of coffee, that statistically they're 70% likely to be lying, And if you want to focus activist action on something, that's probably a good place to focus. And then there are ways to provide that data and to participate in high grading it and to participate in getting to real transparency. So for us, I think of things like the ID as the underlying rails. And then what you put on it is a whole new commodity and a whole new community who are actually trying to bridge between the past's opacity and the future's transparency. I think it's really important what Ingo mentioned about, you know, for us, the on-ramp is just the first step. Because once you have the on-ramp, what you're creating is a class of commodities that are fundamentally, they're just a different thing than what you should be able to buy on the London Metals Exchange or the ICE, and then creating those price signals that then allows a producer, whether they're a coffee grower or a miner, to know that the consumer actually cares about recycled water more than they care about CO2. We just don't know that yet, right? We don't have that data to know who, to know what the community of consumers cares about. There's no market infrastructure for it. We don't, you're right. We don't know that what the data is, what people want yet. We don't know the coffee situation. It's, we don't know if people still will pay $10 for how, if coffee's made in a specific way, or they'll pay a dollar if it's not made. Like, we don't know those things yet because all the companies and the people that have tried to do this. It always was done in a centralized way that was too expensive, or it was done by one specific company that's a behemoth that owns a lot of farms or owns all of the, you know, they're pulling gold out of the ground or they're 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 pulling oil out of the out of the ocean or whatever it is. So and other competitors don't want to trust. Why would you give data to your competitor? And so it's always been fractured and siloed. Inga, we've we've talked about how like data being fractured and siloed screws things up. And I guess this is like the perfect example. This is a perfect example of how, I guess, if you have a decentralized third-party protocol and all of the information and the transparency and the data is up front, 
I guess, Ingo, I'm like answering my own question, right? I was going to ask you, why would people care about decentralization? I think transparency is, is very important for what makes a difference between the Web2 world and, and also the, the world of old commodity exchanges, yeah. which are very closed and have closed information, which is only accessible uh, to a certain group of people and where this type of information actually constitutes the business model of the particular business, right? So you know something and then then you can monetize back to, uh, actually this knowledge. And this is nice for the profit of very few people, but it actually doesn't help the vast majority and transparency is changing this. And this is why I think that uh, that a protocol like, like water, I think has huge potential, not only because it is like it's common sense, but uh, also that people care a lot about where the products that they consume actually come from. And on the other side, you have the producers who actually very much, or many of the producers, actually care very much to propagate where it comes from because it is fair traded and uh, organically uh, and, and so on. So people are interested in actually sharing this knowledge. They have no possibility to do that right now or very little uh, possibility. It's like, but you don't trust it. Has very little opportunity to actually find out if if the information that is on this package is actually true. So uh, if you have this, the information conveyed directly from the producer yeah. to the consumer via a decentralized system which cannot be hacked because it's a blockchain and which is absolutely secure, so that you can trust the information in there because you know you don't have to trust it's the truth which is there. It's it's the it's the old thing between trust and truth, right? And I have a package which says organic coffee. And then I can trust the guy who actually made the package. But if I see on the blockchain that this coffee is actually produced in the way that I want it to be produced, then I know the truth about that. And that's the big difference. And this makes a lot of transparency and brings a lot of truth to the world, which is fantastic. I, I got to add something onto that. because yeah. I, I love where you guys are going with this. What ends up happening, right, is you get, a, you get the producer's truth you get the processor's truth, you get the shipper's truth, all of those layers, and you think of it as a as sort of a honeycomb of, of, of data, which can be queried, which can be verified, which can be added to, but it can never be altered by third parties. Yeah. And that's really powerful. And that's why decentralization is incredibly exciting, because what you're doing is you're not telling a producer to give their data to a competitor or someone else to mess with, data integrity is is safeguarded, and we've never had that world of you know no need to trust one another because there's trustless infrastructure available to commodities, and I think that's for me anyway has been the the, the thing that I'm in love with. What you can do when you create that decentralized world, and then those feedback loops, right? Because what you're also doing is letting the producer know what they should put more value on, letting the shipper know, and then maybe getting rid of some of the noise. Because organic, fair trade, even if we believe that people are telling us truths when something is organic, who decided what organic was? I don't get to yeah, decide, right? It's, it's a centralized producer-led movement that said, if I meet these boxes, then I am organic. But when I go buy an organic avocado, I don't have a way of cross-referencing it with my values and saying, yes, it meets these three. I just have to buy it because a centralized organization told me it's better than not or fair trade. And so I think that's exciting, right? 
Are any like halal or kosher organizations using DIDs or something like this? Because that, that's a perfect use case right there. Dude, I hadn't even thought about that. I don't know if they're working with Ingo, but you, you now just gave me people to go talk to. I hadn't thought about that, but it is, it is exactly, yeah. I mean, we, we talked to some of the premium supermarkets whose buyers actually want to see source and provenance. And we talked to some, some of the large manufacturers, et cetera, who have made public commitments to do sustainable sourcing. But I've never thought about some of those applications. Inga, what do you think about some of those applications? Uh, I had a call with an uh, Islamic bank uh, last week, actually, and they were thinking about uh, putting DID, uh, using DIDs and verifiable credentials for Islamic conform. Loans, that's yeah. a, that's also that's a big thing in some countries, and uh, that's uh, th- that's very interesting for me because I learn a lot. Uh, but I'm not really sure if uh, this is going to happen. But uh, first talks, yep. Yeah. Halal loans are a very interesting opportunity, I think, for decentralization and potentially this because you can, they can't charge interest. So it's more similar to like the bank is buying equity in your home and you're buying pieces of it back from them. And it changes like the incentive of the relationship between business, you know, like bank and, and it's very interesting. But listen, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was awesome. Thank you.